0: This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like droplets, spaces, Kubernetes, load balancers, block storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy get started for free with a $100 credit, head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, New Pacific. Join the community that's live with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel in go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelog.com slash live or subscribe at changelog.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya. Today, we're talking about Go Modules and the Athens Project, uh, joined by the one and only Carmen Arndo. Carmen, Hello. how are you going? Hello, hello. How have you been?
2: I'm doing well, and you?
1: Not bad, thank you, yes. And guess what? I've got two other friends with us today. Ooh. Would you like to meet them? Yes, exciting. Imagine if you just said no.
2: Oh, that would just be equally as... <laughs> ruin it. Trolling. <laughs> yeah, I totally. Would. No, I'm not a troll.
1: Well, we're joined today by two contributors uh, to the Athens Project, I think. And uh, we're going to learn a lot, I think, about uh, Go modules and dependencies and things from uh, Aaron Schlesinger and Marwan Solomon. Hello. 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 Did your names fall out of my mouth correctly? 99%. If not, you're, you're welcome to correct it. Yeah, I'll give you 99 as well. Oh, 99 percents is great. I work in machine learning. Anything above 80 is brilliant.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Motto for life. Let's
1: talk about that.
3: <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, let's talk about that.
1: So uh, Aaron, you've been on GoTime before, haven't you? Yeah,
3: I was on GoTime in like 2016, I think, back in the day.
1: And what did you talk about?
3: I talked about teaching Go and the Go in Five Minutes program mm. and design patterns, I think.
1: Oh, wow. Great. So that episode is still available, I guess, if anyone's interested to travel back in time and go and listen to it. But don't travel back in time. Just listen to it now.
3: Yeah. I was looking it up the other day. I think it's maybe number 18 or something, 19, maybe. Oh, wow.
1: Very early then.
3: Yeah, it was an OG.
1: <laughs> Great. And one. You have a very interesting uh, backstory, I think, assuming it's true. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, please?
4: Yeah, you're just going to have to take my word for it. Um, <laughs> so I am uh, a Go developer from Baghdad, Iraq. I grew up in the early 1990s, which reveals my age a little bit, but it's kind of part of the story because even though I grew up under a dictatorship, I was very lucky to have had a personal computer at home. And I feel like my mom's story is a lot more interesting than mine, because my mom was actually a COBOL developer in Iraq in the 80s and 90s. Her job was a database designer transferring a lot of the Iraqi institutions um, from being paper-based to digital-based. Wow! But because of the US sanctions at the time, her developer salary was basically a sixth of what a personal computer would cost. And so basically, the, the monthly salary that is, and so she, obviously it was, you'd have to save up for six months without spending a penny to be able to afford a computer at the time. But her father um, actually had sold the house because he was targeted by the regime for a completely different story. And he had asked um, each of his six children what they wanted as a gift from the money he had made selling the house. And my mom asked for a computer. That same computer he bought her is the, is the one that I grew up with. And it's a super old computer that I like went around the internet looking for. And I talked to my mom. I was like, do you remember what it was and what it was called? Because it was an Iraqi assembled version of what I found out to be the NEC PC6001. In the US, apparently it was called the NEC Trek. And it's basically a big bulky keyboard with a cartridge slot on the side. And so it came with two cartridges. One was a video game and the other was the basic programming language. And basically my earliest memory was that I could make it go in an infinite loop and narcissistically have it say my name in different colors.
1: <laughs> <And> <laughs> Sounds familiar.
4: Ever since, I've always, I've always wanted to become a programmer. Fast forward 10 years later, the second Gulf War um, had you know, torn the country apart. And in 2005, my family was targeted by terrorists. And my mom and dad wanted to send me as far away as possible without having to lose my education. And so I actually ended up coming to the U.S. and living with a host family in Connecticut. And I went to high school while I lived with them. Then I went to college and I studied international affairs, had completely forgotten about programming, did not like my first job and thankfully did not get the promotion that I wanted. Um, So I quit and I remember that I liked computers and I joined a coding boot camp in New York City. And that's when it all started and here I am today
1: wow wow that's amazing that your mom was into computers back then even that's amazing for any any country that's amazing for but yeah
4: I mean it's awesome we we it's really funny we've kind of reconnected in terms of talking about computers because for the last let's say before I started programming again you know for 10-15 years we never even talked about it because She only did it in the 80s and 90s and had switched gears um, since then. And so the most interesting thing is that she still doesn't believe that COBOL is still relevant.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But it is. It is. Oh, but it it is. is. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And I think I've read so much about Iraqi culture and a lot of women in science and math. Like one of the Fields medal winners in mathematics was, well, she passed away a couple of years ago, but it was... Someone from um, Baghdad, and I can't remember her name, but she was at Stanford. And I just remember reading about her and then her tragic succumbing to cancer and all that stuff. So I'm sure your mom is kind of um, the generation just before her that led to that. And I'm so glad that she and you share that now. Now she's still in Iraq.
4: Uh, yeah, she recently accepted a job in Lebanon, so she is working in Lebanon, but my whole family's still back home.
2: Okay.
1: She sounds awesome. She is. Thank you. Uh, so please tell her that from us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I will. Aaron, do do you want to have a go at a backstory or is it not going to come anywhere close to that? No, no, it's, it's the worst. Should have gone first.
3: (laughs) No, it's not even, it's, you know, I grew up in Chicago and then I moved here. That's it.
1: Oh, wow. Pretty pretty much. You actually... You actually took quite a lot of time saying that. I'm a bit annoyed.
3: <laughs> I know. I, I should just keep my mouth shut. But I want no, no, to take that time and instead say, Maron, I'm super glad that you remembered that you like programming and <laughs> went through the journey and went to programming boot camp and all that stuff, a, among other things, working on Athens with all of the- us.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I remembered it too, because I really did not like my first job. also good (laughs) and
2: i love the story about like how it was a failure that prompted you to this path and so maybe a reminder that sometimes failure is a really good thing in our life
1: that's a great point actually yeah Uh, they do say don't they you don't learn from your successes you only really learn from your failures yeah. Um, so the smart, the smartest people you encounter are probably also the biggest failures. Yeah. A bit weird. There's a
2: book called Tribe of Mentors, and he basically just goes around and does interviews with um, people that have been successful in their different um, areas. And one of the questions is, what is your favorite failure? Mm. And I just love that because it embraces failure. And so mm. would that be your favorite failure, Marwan?
4: <laughs> I think so. I think um, sort of being being unhappy is my favorite failure because I try to get out of it as much as possible.
2: And that's funny because we had a um, sort of something a couple of weeks ago where Ashley said, you know, coding boot camps are predatory, but you're, you were a success story of a coding boot camp in that respect.
4: Yes. So Ashley at some point tweeted about how to start learning like for beginners, how to start learning programming, and I made the suggestion of say, well, I you know did a coding bootcamp and it worked out for me, and it kind of turned into like complete opposite opinions. Some people said it was the worst, some people said it was the best, mm. and so you know I think it's totally true. Some people have had like terrible um, luck, and I am one of the very lucky people that ended up enjoying it and it kind of worked out. I honestly don't have a scientific like answer to why all I did is really like try my best to learn as much as possible about the bootcamp because I did hear in the beginning um you know a lot of companies don't trust them they don't know how much you know there's all sorts of preconceptions about that and so really I just I think I just lucked out
3: I'm sure you put a lot of work into it too and and didn't just luck out well so
4: the bootcamp that I did was interesting it it had an interesting model, which was you don't pay for the bootcamp until you get a job, which kind of gave you a, a bit of a safety net that like you're not just paying a bunch of money to learn nothing. Um, so you basically they said like, hey, if you don't end up getting a job, you don't pay us. And so part of it was that they really pushed you to make sure you learn um, because otherwise they wouldn't have made money.
1: Mm. Which boot camp was it? My one.
4: Um, it was called App Academy. And if that was, you know, four or five years ago. I hope they're still as awesome as they were when I joined. <laughs> they have, uh, they're in New York City and San Francisco.
1: Hmm. Okay, good. Well, so I think I'm interested. Are we, we're going to get to the Athens project for sure, because I think it's quite an important part of this story. But maybe we could just chat a little bit about the history of Go and dependencies in Go uh, for anyone that doesn't quite, uh, hasn't used it or, or or doesn't know, or maybe you're new to Go. It, it was interesting because it used to just all be about the Go path, and one of the one of the nice things I liked about Go path was the fact that the import path was also the the URL of the project itself where it was hosted. So it's just a simple thing, but it turned out in practice whenever you would go and look in a project and see a dependency you can just copy the the import path and paste it in the browser and then it opens that project and i always found that as a kind of cognitive shortcut to be really useful so i i'm quite friendly when it comes to talking about GoPath. i know that it's one of the most tricky things for a lot of people and has been a challenge and there are obviously other problems with it but it's interesting to To see then that the the Go team kind of acknowledged this is a problem, and the community and the Go team all kind of started to explore different ideas around you know how to do dependencies differently. So yeah, has anyone got any feelings about the uh, anything in the history of that? Was that were there any projects like? What did you think of the vendor folder? Was that something that you thought was a good step, or do we feel like that was bad? How do we feel?
3: I'll butt in real quick. Uh, I think the vendor vendor directory was probably the most crucial change in Go uh, with respect to dependencies. More crucial, I think, than modules because it started the discussion about everything we're thinking about and talking about today.
1: So for anyone who doesn't know, vendoring essentially, you copy the dependency at the time that you add it. You actually copy it and stick it in a folder called vendor and then the Go toolchain will... It will import it from that vended folder if it's there first before going off and uh, and and getting it from the website, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, it it was good to start that discussion, and it was also good to kind of establish that there's going to be sort of this lookup order, if you will, Mm. when you're building your project or how the Go tool is going to go and find the package that you depend on.
1: Right. There's a an order like it's going to check the vendor folder first. It'll it will check your other, probably the go path next. Mm -hmm. And then if it's not, if it can't find it, then it goes off and gets it from the original source.
3: Yeah. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was one of the first times where you could set, uh, where it was common to set an environment variable to define where your dependencies are going to come from as well. So they had the, I think it was the go one five vendor experiment environment variable. Mm. Um, that was released after Go 1.5. And if you set it to, I think the value was on, if you set it to on, then the Go tool would first look in your local vendor directory for the dependency. And if it's there, then, and like you said, Matt, it would build from that dependency. And then otherwise it would fall back to the Go path and, and then up to the version control, uh, if it wasn't in the Go path and, I just remember seeing that environment variable as an option and just really liking the sort of the, I guess it's kind of like the 12 factor app sort of feel to it, uh, where I can decide from project to project, whether I want to use a vendor directory or I don't, I want to go just use the plain old GoPath.
4: Which now is a flag called dash mod equals vendor. So you still have that option.
3: Yeah, still feel comfortable in my vendor directory. (laughs)
4: <laughs> I always thought that GoPath was awesome until you needed versions, and that's when things got out of the way a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, because you'd start off, I mean, this happened to me where I would have a particular copy or a version of the dependency on my machine. So, in my local development machine, it was using that. Now, meanwhile, that project was changing without me realizing. And then when someone else joins and wants to build the same code, uh, of course, they don't have it on their machine, so it goes to the goes to the web to get it, and now it's changed, and their build doesn't work and mine does. That's just a very simple kind of explanation of, I think, the drawback, really, with, with the way that that worked. Are there any other...
3: Well, what you just said, actually, Matt, is... That was kind of the primary reason that we started building Athens, Mm. Uh, because there's been so many breakages like that just across the community.
1: Yeah, I I did hear one thing early when I was in Go that really kind of resonated and also did sound a bit funny, which was when someone asked that question, what do you do if the if the packages change, I think the answer was, "Well, don't change them." <laughs> so yeah. once you've released a, a package, don't change it. Yeah. That, and to be fair, that that doesn't that does work.
4: Maintain compatibility
1: forever. Yeah, forever. Yeah. Well, you see, the Go core team do that. They do do that for the v1, the v1 promise, and presumably, like you said, that the the dash mod equals vendor flag. That that also shows they are supporting. They they care about this stuff. That that they don't want to just break everything. But does modules break things? Is it hard to turn a project into if you have already existing code? Is it difficult to turn that into a Go modules project?
4: It kind of is sometimes. Uh, it depends. I want to say if you are a package that has already been mature enough to have a tag that is above version two, you know, equal or above version two, then you know, it's converting to modules is not only a pain to the author but a pain to the people using it. Um, using that package, and because you have to update your import path to include v2 or v3 in them. But if you're not, if if you're still like version 0. something or version 1. something, I think converting to modules is actually quite a, uh, an easy process. You can you can keep your you know go package.toml from depth. You can keep any legacy dependency management um, manifests. They all they can all work together, so you can support both modules and other things at the same time. Um, Hopefully, there's always weird edge cases.
3: Yeah, and I think part of uh, that sort of V1 compatibility promise is the Go tool is decent, I would say, at basically taking what's in your, what Marwan, like you said, legacy uh, manifest file and sort of translating that into the Go modules format, which would be the go.mod file and the go.sum file. And it's probably kind of like the 8020 type of thing. Um, but for a lot of projects that are like Maron again, like Maron said, you know, v, v1, but not v2. Um, it seems to work pretty well overall.
1: Yeah, maybe you could tell us a bit more about the go.mod and go.sum files. What actually are they?
4: Sure. Uh, so the GoMod file basically defines what your own import path is. And if it is a URL-looking path, then people can go get it. And so that's the very first line of a GoMod file, defining who you are, like what this program is. And it doesn't have to be if you're working on a local project that you're never going to share with anyone but your own computer. You don't have to have a full URL path as, your, as the name of your program or the import path. What comes after is basically a list of third-party dependencies and what version they are. And so that's where you kind of do most of the work. If you ever require third-party dependencies, if you do a go get from within that project, your GoMod file is automatically updated with the latest version that Go thinks you need. Um, and so that file is interestingly managed by the human and the computer. Because, you know, a lot of go get and go build does some modification to the go mod file. But sometimes you need to get a little bit more detailed. Sometimes you want a fork of a dependency. um, And that's when the replace clause comes in. And so sometimes you have to, you could manually go in and change that file. And the go command has some help with that where you can say like go mod replace, which at the end of the day is you're just changing the go mod file to say, Hey, this import path, let's say github.com slash package slash errors, for example, I don't want that code. I want that import path, but I actually want to point to another fork, something like github.com slash marwan slash errors, because I have a change that maybe is not yet merged in to the upstream. And so you could dig a little bit deeper. And so that's the GoMod file.
1: I feel like just editing the file is probably easier than using that replace tool you think
4: that's what I do? Yeah. And so I just wanted to be a little bit technical and say you could potentially never touch it. But I, actually, if you go in and just put a replace clause there, copy, paste and import path is quite easy. Um, and so that's why I think the GoMod file is a little interesting in that it's kind of like the human and the computer working together to make your program build which is on itself a testament to how complex dependency management is. And so that's kind of the GoMod file. And it has a companion that you touched upon called the GoSum file. And that one contains integrity information about um, the modules you're building. And so that's when things get interesting and kind of different from other programming languages where you trust maybe a registry. The GoSum file, basically for every module you download, you keep a record of a checksum of the entire code base. You know, Go actually downloads the module and makes a zip file out of it and then calculates the checksum. And that checksum is recorded in the GoSum file. And so that's when you start to say, maybe I don't need the vendor folder, right? It hints that, you know, you can go get this dependency later on and it has to match exactly to the byte of the original time you wanted that package. Otherwise. Will not compile your program.
1: Yeah, so that's interesting. So you can trust that everything is exactly as it was when you added that dependency, essentially, right?
4: Yes. And if it's not, you cannot compile. And so that gets into a whole other conversation of how do I ensure that, okay, well, maybe something bad happened and now I cannot build anymore. And so that's when, you know, Athens and proxies and sort of putting a bit of, even vendor itself puts a layer of guarantees that um if anything bad happens in the internet um you can still compile your program
1: bad things don't happen on the internet do they nothing yeah never (laughs) no
3: i've never seen anything bad happen on the internet (laughs) right
0: This episode is brought to you by StrongDM. StrongDM makes it easy for DevOps to enforce the controls InfoSec teams require manage access to any database, server, and any environment. And in this segment, we're talking to Jim Mordco VP of Engineering at Hearst. He's sharing how they're using StrongDM within their team of 90 plus engineers. It now takes them just 60 seconds to offboard a team member from a data source. We have an engineering team of somewhere in the area of 80 or 90 engineers. Because we've got so many services and
3: many databases um, and so many developers, we need a reasonable way to manage access to them. Uh, it, was, it was a somewhat pain painful and you know labor intensive process uh, our devops team uh, would literally have to manage every one of the permissions for everybody who wanted access um, so StrongDM has been a real godsend in that area for us. Requests for access to specific databases were pretty much manual. Now we've adopted StrongDM. It's something that you don't even know is there. Once it's installed, it just works. It's very simple. Um, we've set up a multitude of data sources so that when somebody's onboarded, we just give them access to StrongDM. It's pretty simple. Um, our DevOps team, um, they have a very minimal effort required to enable each data source to be connected to StrongDM. And then installing the client software is uh, it's very, very simple and straightforward you can use whatever client you want to to talk to the database so there's really no training necessary
0: all right if your team can benefit from nearly instant onboarding and offboarding that's fully SOC 2 compliant head to strongdm.com to learn more and request a free demo again strongdm.com
1: So what what happens if a dependency goes away, or you know a project just gets deleted? Never mind, there's a new version, but it's just gone.
4: Yeah, if you have a if you have a vendor folder, then you're good to go. Like you have a copy of that dependency in your project. You might not even know that it was gone three years ago <laughs> or whenever, but if you're using something like module system where vendor is not is not looked at by default, so it went from implicit to explicit saying like, I want to build from vendor. If it's gone, you're out of luck. And so you have to have another place to keep a copy of every single module that you need. And the Go team is working on one for the open source that is currently out, and that's The public side of things but what about private modules and so that's when Athens comes in but both of these really are trying to solve the solution of when modules disappear we don't want the internet to break and because we're relying on version control systems for dependencies we're not relying on a registry like npm or ruby gems and so there is no contract. You know, anyone can go delete their code base and they should, you know, they have their code, they can build it, they can delete it, they can change it.
3: I think the other cool thing on top of that, Marwan, is like we can now sort of separate the developer, the code that the developer is working on and that whole workflow from the code that we actually get to use in our program. So I, I think sometimes in the CI/CD world, people separate the concept of like source code versus release asset. That's like, you squint a little bit, that's kind of what it feels like we're doing here in the whole modules ecosystem by saying there's the source code is the source code and then the module is the actual artifact that me as an app developer is going to consume for your dependency. And I think that is like a big step forward for for all of us.
4: Exactly. I mean, yeah, everything starts from the source code itself. And that really, to me, is the best part of the Go ecosystem is that at the end of the day, the source of truth is your source code. So you don't have to say, for example, npm publish and maybe forget to push to GitHub, or maybe you do a push to GitHub and forget to publish to the registry. So everything starts from the source of truth itself is your, say, your GitHub repository. But the moment a proxy makes a copy of it, it's no longer disappearable, if that's a word.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, It's it becomes a next sort of unit of logical unit of operation once software goes into production. Like I really loved how you said that we have been relying on version control for dependencies and the ramifications of that that, that have been happening in the last, I don't know how many years. But like I look at Node.js's left pad which was a famous vendoring incident, right? All these apps broke when a dependency was no longer available. And what would have happened if they had a proxy?
1: I love that story, though, the left pad thing.
4: Someone would have saved money somewhere.
3: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And Carmen, that kind of points to like this concept of federation, too, which is a whole other cool thing that I think the module ecosystem has that, yeah, like you said, it would have helped in the NPM ecosystem for sure. But kind of warms my heart to say, to be able to say that the Go modules ecosystem isn't just dependent on like one server somewhere. It can kind of, anyone can run a server and there actually already are multiple public proxies and, you know, you can run your own proxy as well. And it all just kind of works together. And that's super, just really cool for, to think about to me at least.
2: I agree. Yeah. And I love, I loved Athens when it first came out. I mean, I I remember that there was a white paper that came out and it was, the modules is based on protocols that people can use. So it was basically empowering the ecosystem to build out solutions as they saw fit. And then, of course, I saw Athens in, um, I think it was you that was, we were at a meetup in Portland together and you did a presentation on it. And then I tried to steal away some of my work time to be a contributor to it. And that was (laughs) short-lived. But I just love what you're doing. So both of you, and of course, there's also like Manu and a lot of other, it's such a great uh, channel in Gopher Slack, Athens. So welcoming and just active and people that are helpful. I really enjoy it.
3: Well, everyone is welcome. And Carmen, if you want to come back anytime, we're (laughs) happy to to have you.
4: Yeah. We're annoyingly friendly.
2: Yes, that is a good way of putting it. Totally, Marwan.
3: Oh Marwan. <laughs> we, Marwan, you should you should say your your chill open source line. Oh
4: god, yeah. Who was it? I think um <laughs> Carolyn was saying like I need to push this change before we release. I'll do it like Friday. And I was like, you can do it whenever you want. <laughs> like <laughs> that if you want to put a deadline for yourself, totally chill. But like otherwise it's a chill open source project. There are absolutely no expectations. Just the fact that you're here means a lot to us. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love it that should be the tagline and of course annoyingly friendly that's a good tagline <laughs> I what I really like about it is that you really take any and all questions you just are a model of what I feel like open source stewardship should be oh that's nice
1: mm, so anyone out there that's running an open source project they should uh, have a look at Athens and see, see what you can learn <laughs> or just come hang out with us too so what's the history then Behind Athens, how did it get started, and where did it start, and who was involved?
3: So, right when the series of blog posts that Russ published, or they—I guess they're articles—I don't know what the technical term Uh, is—but right when those writings came out (laughs) about Vigo, they had that section about the download protocol, which at the time looks pretty much the same now. It's, It's like six HTTP endpoints that are at the core of it or maybe it's five, something like that, a low number. And basically, anyone can build that, just like you were saying, Carmen, and it's this abstraction layer and you can kind of put whatever you want behind it. So I wrote a Buffalo app, shout out to Mark, who's not here today, but I wrote a Buffalo app that basically implemented that and it stored the modules in memory after it went and grabbed them up from GitHub or wherever. So if you did a go-get against the then Athens proxy, it would, in the background, go and do its own go-get, back up to GitHub or wherever. It would get the module down and then store it in the in-memory database. And then the next time you did a go-get, it would serve that module directly out of memory. And that was a toy, pretty much. But I showed it to a couple of folks. Marwan mentioned Carolyn, Carolyn like. And um, I showed it to Eric St. Martin and Brian Kettleson. And if I forgot anyone, I really apologize, but I think that's almost everybody. And they were totally into it too. So we decided to work together and we created a new GitHub org to host this code in. And the code, I called it Prox, like vgoproxy, uh, which was totally lame. And so Brian went to one of those startup name generators, and oh. <laughs> because naming is hard, I think the name that came out was like Athens Dash Brass. So we went with the Greek theme. Uh, just called Athens, and uh, mm. so I, that's that's how it ended up where it is. And and then Brian did a couple talks on it. I did a couple small things like at meetups, and people just kind of like at first trickled in, and and then I wouldn't say we're really having a massive surge of people but it's like it's more than the trickle now it's kind of gained some steam and obviously we have amazing contributors now maintainers like marwan and and we've got a bunch of others there's i think there's like six contributor like six core maintainers there's got to be like 15 or 20 like official contributors in the github org now and there's tons of other folks who, who come in and they'll ask a question or they'll fix uh, docs or they'll fix a bug or whatever. And I guess just a shameless plug for the community again is like uh, we consider like anyone who comes to say hi even or more. I just personally, I just really like to think of them as like they're part of the community of Athens. And if they come in and they say hi, that's just as good as coming in and fixing a bug because they're in, they're part of it. And they want to go and do more. We're there. We're there to help them do more. I went a little bit off on a tangent about community again there, but I hope that paints a little bit of a history there.
1: No, that was brilliant. It's really interesting to see that what I love is that it comes out of having to solve real problems. Too much of tech, and it's so tempting, we're all guilty of this, but too much of it is we just imagine cool things. And we almost imagine that there's these problems and we can build these cool solutions to it. So when there's a direct and obvious and a real kind of pain point that's being uh, addressed by something, I just think I just love that. I mean, I think every developer needs to know what that is when they're working on something. You know, it's easy to get abstracted down and be lost in some big organization. But if you lose the why of what you're doing then I think you're in trouble. So I always urge everyone to do that. And this one, this is a great example of that. There's a definite issue. There's a definite problem and some pain that we were just feeling for a long time. And then people rallied around and started to look at it. And I think that's, that's what I love about open source. The Athens Project, by the way, on GitHub now has 2,200 stars, which is pretty impressive. Mm. Not that we measure things with stars, but... <laughs> It does have that many stuff. And half
4: of them are just bots I created. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> then the other half must be the bots I created. <laughs> Good work, Marlon. Team effort. The bots I created don't work, <laughs> so it's non, none of them are that. <laughs> so what about speed? Actually, let me ask you this first. What happens to test files, the underscore test.go files, when a module is created or a dependency created? Clone happens,
4: right? It depends on when you say what ha- when a module is created. And so, if you're building your own project and you import a dependency, regardless of Athens or a proxy, when Go creates this, uh, create you know adds this module to your gomod file, it does not add any test dependencies. And that's when you have to type a little magic um, in the command line, which is called mod tidy. And gomod tidy is basically it tidies up your entire Go mod file. It removes any dependencies you don't need, but it also em- it puts in all the test dependencies, and so that if you ever run your dependency tests, you'll you'll have the right. Or if you ever even like, basically, if you if you're running your own tests that are relying on some files or some packages in that dependency, then you're you're also going to make sure that your tests are reproducible.
1: Right. So the tests do go along. In the proxy, then in Athens, when the copy gets created, it copies the whole thing, does it?
4: Yeah. So, the interesting part about that is the fact that all proxies must use the go command itself to download modules. And so they don't have to, but that means they're going kind of rogue. And so, there is a bit of a background to this. So, for example, think that you're trying to build something from Athens. So, you're on your local computer, there's an Athens server somewhere, and you say, hey, can I please get package number one and if Athens doesn't have package number one, it's storage, it's going to have to go get it from somewhere and so it could go to GitHub and download it itself and just returns it to you but the problem there is that you might have skipped a byte here and there and your checksum is going to be completely different from another proxy's checksum or the original go checksum. So what you have to do is that when you download the module or when Athens downloads a module, it has to use a go command called go mod download and i believe go mod download and please someone correct me if i'm wrong basically downloads the entire repo and makes a zip file of it and so that it ensures it has a couple of rules i believe it skips symlinks and maybe a couple of things but it keeps pretty much most files in there and it creates a zip file and so it's a nice abstraction that Athens doesn't even have to think about as long as it has the go command it calls Goma download, and it basically downloads everything for you. And we just have to store whatever Goma download put on disk.
1: So, if there was an image in that repo, would and and someone changed just that image, would that then just be a different checksum? So, therefore, it's considered different, even though it is the same.
3: It should be. I think the checksum is only over code. Is is that right, Marwan? Do you know?
4: That's- a really good question i remember playing with it i've never looked at the i've glanced over the go modules code and it, there's quite a lot there but i remember it skipped a few things i don't remember it skipping random files and just looking at code but i could be wrong interesting i will try to sneak in a quick experiment
1: as we talk
3: <laughs> <laughs> someone in the channel if you know paste it in there so
1: when they put the build caching in i noticed Builds were just a lot faster. What happens to speed with using Athens and using Go modules? Do we get performance improvements there too?
4: Um, basically, the interesting part about using an HTTP protocol to download modules, so whether it's Athens or something else, is that you're not using a Git or a version control system-based way to download a module. So imagine if you're depending on, say, you know CockroachDB. And you wanna you wanna download it. The old way would have done a git clone, which means a download of the entire history. But with a new proxy, you know exactly what version you want. And so you just want a zip formatted state of that repository. You don't need to download the entire version control system history behind it. And so that's a huge performance gain. And so and once you have it in storage, that's even a higher performance because you don't need to go get it from the internet. And so the performance. I believe the original Vigo papers had CockroachDB as an example, saying like it's four minutes versus a few seconds, which is a big
1: difference. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is really cool, and actually especially important if you're in a country or a town that where the internet connection really isn't doing it for you. Which, and I know that there are gophers that are in the situation with lo- sort of kind of small, uh, you know, low quality internet connections. That's going to actually make a a real difference there to builds and adding dependencies, I guess. That's awesome.
3: I think another part is that since it's HTTP, it's the web. So you can cache it, you can put CDNs in front of it, you can do all the cool HTTP things that web developers know and love. Like the, I don't know all the details of uh, some of the public proxies that are out there right now, but if I had to guess, I would say that they're probably sitting... With CDNs next to them. And that means that if you do a go get uh, using one of those proxies, you would be go getting one of those tiny zip files from somewhere really close to you that has really good bandwidth.
2: Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah, I feel like awesome. this, like Matt, you said earlier, how we're empowered to sort of find a thing and remember the why and fix the why. And I think you just defined what makes for a healthy ecosystem. And I think Athens is a, an exemplary project for how dependency management is um, an interesting problem in distributed systems and developing software today, and how the community and the ecosystem steps up to help fix that.
1: Yeah, I love that.
4: There are a lot of... the. the my favorite part is, the, is everything you said, and the fact that you can also extend what the base protocol is. And so to me, that's when I found like Athens be the most interesting project because you touched upon speed and you just want this need to have this. And then from there, you can say, wait, you know, now I have a storage of all my modules. And so you can think about maybe a company wants to run an Athens server for all of its projects. And now its storage has every single dependency they know this company depends on. And so to me, that's my favorite part about a proxy versus vendor. And so if each project vendored its own dependencies, you're really kind of not aware of what each project needs. You have to go in and look at the vendor or go in each project and see what they depend on. But now you have a central place for this company's modules from all the projects, and you can do things maybe like scan over them and look for vulnerable projects. You can like integrate with like third-party security software, if you will. You could do all sorts of things. You can basically build anything you want out of that central place.
2: Not to mention the security implications, right? So you, when you index it, you index it with a SHA or a, some sort of hash, and you make sure that any sort of you know attack. Possible vectors can be petted off at the pass because you have indexed it and you know that the package that you're getting is the package that you want. I'm not sure if that is ever going to be a possible exploit or if it has been and I'm, not, I'm unaware, but I know that sometimes I've asked in the past, like, how do I know that the thing that I'm getting if I'm not using SSH isn't being fuddled with in the middle? Um, and version control certainly helps with that because they do have commit shaws and everything like that, but they don't do it with, with objects um, and releases and tags outside of GitHub. So if you're not dealing with GitHub or GitLab, like I just wonder about that often.
3: Yeah, and the security and integrity kind of uh, story, if I guess, if you will, uh, on the whole modules ecosystem, it's got a lot of cool layers to it. I call like these sort of internal organizational things the quote enterprisey features. Um, and it's, a, it's a very technical term, <laughs> but. You know, it's like Marwan, it's like what you and and Carmen, what you said too, is you have this ability to control one sort of entry point uh, instead of relying on GitHub or the VCS to do your authentication of modules for you. But then on top of that, the Go team has added another layer of uh, auditability, basically, by letting you verify that before you even go get a module, it already knows and can prove to you that there's sort of an audit trail of what the checksum for that module is as well. So before the code even enters your code base, you can tell, you can actually prove that that code hasn't been fuddled with. And then after it's in your code base from then on, you have those checksums that you can always look at and it'll automatically fail your build and all that great stuff as well. So it's it's kind of another testament to the community as well that you know we we've got these open protocols and now we can build all these different layers in the security space in this case that I think is just really cool.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud-native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new Elastic Agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org kubernetes. Again, gocd.org kubernetes.
1: How do we use Athens today then? Do you use that GoProxy environment variable or that Do you not have it hosted yet? Is it publicly available? What's the situation?
3: So Athens is made primarily to host internally uh, or for your own mirror, basically. So tons of people are running it in their CI pipelines. There are some folks I know who run it inside of really regulated firms that don't have, that just shut down access to the internet. I know of one person, this was as of a couple months ago, They're running it in an organization that you literally have to take code from a USB stick uh, and get it approved by legal, and then you can load it into Athens. Mm. So that's sort of the main use case of it. But myself, and I I think there's some other folks out there, we just like to have fun with it. So, like, I host it in the cloud and then I do like weird stuff and I build all these like dumb extensions to it and, and things like that. So, one of the ones that I host is on our docs page that's kind of like, uh, this is the one you can try. You don't have to set up any Athens by yourself. You can just set go proxy equals this address and start doing stuff with Athens. Um, but then there are a lot of instructions on how to install it. Everything from just running a go binary all the way up to running it in Kubernetes and stuff. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, the website's great. I recommend anyone interested. Is it docs.gomods.io? Yep, that is it. I recommend checking that out for anyone that's interested.
4: Yeah, um, if anyone wants to download and use Athens, I honestly think, you know, go to docs.gomods.io, but also go to the Athens Slack channel and you'll probably get a very quick answer there
1: too.
2: It's very active in Gopher slack the Athens channel, for sure. Super helpful.
1: Brilliant. Were there any surprises as you were building Athens? because I think a lot of the a lot of the value in it really comes, and this could be wrong, but it seems to me like a lot of the real value of it just kind of comes from the design of it and the thinking of it. But was it technically difficult to implement, or were there any surprises as you were building it and as you've been working on it?:
3: Hmm, were there surprises? I mean, yeah, yes. I'm trying to think of like a real example because all I remember right now is like saying, "Hmm, I didn't think of that." But I don't remember what. I have a couple. It was. That did, I didn't did, think of. Did you not
1: use a depend- yeah. did you not use a dependency manager for it?
3: i i i won't say
4: as of today it still uses vendor and we're pretty close to having it not use vendor which is kind of a a a really funny thing it's like do we even trust this new module system (laughs) (laughs) even though we're building on top of it but really i mean can you
3: edit that part out (laughs) No, it (laughs) it works when i say something (laughs) that's really
4: the funny part Ah, (laughs) just just kidding I mean, it's because everything is still, honestly, I I love the fact that we're still using vendor and we're just now thinking of removing it because the vendor is something that's been proven and used for a long time now. And the module system is still very, very new and it's only going to be on by default in the next version. And so I feel like it's a very kind of like adulting decision to make. To say, (laughs) we're excited about this, but we're also very careful, and we may want to make sure that it works. And only when we think what we're building is good enough that we'll build it with Athens, you know, building Athens with Athens. And so I think we're there.
1: Yeah, I think it's fair enough, because remember, Go used to be written in C. Mm -hmm. Exactly. yeah. Yeah, so it's the same thing.
3: I think there's another part of that, too, is when Go first came open source, there was kind of a call to build the Go spec in lots of different implementations, and that's kind of what we're hoping for, and, and we're kind of getting as a community now. There's the proxy.golang.org. There's Athens. There's a gocenter.io. Uh, I know there's another one called, I want to say, called GoProxy out there on GitHub. Someone showed me one that was built in Bash Ooh. that blew my mind. Uh, um, what? If you are the one who built it in Bash, can you put the link to it in in the Go Time FM channel? Because that thing was cool. But it's an HTTP server, isn't it? Yeah, you yep. can do that in Bash, apparently.
4: What? Um,
3: mm-hmm.
1: That's why yeah, really outraged.
4: All sorts of awesome implementations. And my favorite part is now in one point thirteen, the Go proxy environment variable is going to be a comma separated um, mm. argument or value, and so that you can actually tell Go to build things from multiple proxies Mm -hmm. and so that comes all sorts of cool stuff where you can maybe have your internal proxy first that only stores your internal code and then on for any public code you just tell return to the go command a 404 and it will move on to the next proxy and maybe the next proxy is proxy.golang.org but if it's down maybe it'll hopefully return a 404 and maybe move on to the next one or whatever like you can ensure high availability Mm -hmm. as long as that proxy guarantees it and you can kind of put all sorts of different logic from the client side
1: do you know if it also or if they could support the the e-tags and the if match header and things so that you could even say give me this dependency if it's changed if not or does that not make sense because you're already asking for specific versions anyway
4: you're not necessarily asking for a specific version because when you want to download a module first, so the Go Download protocol comes with five different endpoints. And so one of these endpoints is a bit of a discovery endpoint. saying for this module, what versions do you have? Mm-hmm. And so this is the at v slash list endpoint. And so when you say, you know, go package errors slash at v slash list, you might get a list of semantic versions. And if the repository doesn't have semantic versions, it'll go to the next discovery endpoint, which is called at latest. Say, okay, if you don't have any semantic versions, just give me the latest, which could be like a kind of like a commit, git commit type pseudo-semver. And so that said, currently there is no way to support, actually I'm not familiar with e-tags, but any sort of special headers, I know as of now it doesn't support, which I can get more into, but maybe explain e-tags first.
1: Oh, uh, no, you just send a string, I think, and then the server decides whether it has a newer version based on that and then it sets an e-tag header. So it's just a caching thing, but I wondered if that played into this or if it could. But it's quite interesting. And I was thinking as well about if if somebody owns a a GitHub repo or they they sort of maintain a, a project, is there anything they should be aware of now that perhaps wasn't as important, and I'm thinking specifically maybe like tagging releases and things like that. But are there other yeah. good practices and things?
3: Uh, Semver. So it's you said it, tagging releases, but modules really take Semver pretty seriously. Marwan touching it at the beginning of uh, the episode. When modules sees that you've bumped a Semver major Semver, they actually it requires a new path. So by module path, I mean If you're going from v1 to v2, which would be a breaking change, your module path would be slash v2. If you're going to do GitHub tags or git tags, you got to really pay attention to whether you're making a breaking change or not. And if so, know that that's going to mean folks who want to pick up your breaking change are going to update their import path to add that slash v2 to the path itself.
4: Mm. Just adding on to that that the Go team I believe is building a tool that will help you catch whether you're making a breaking change in at least in your API signatures like function and type signatures and it will kind of warn you so that you know you shouldn't like tag a new release as a minor version or a patch version that it should be a major version. I don't remember where that code lives but I believe in it's an either experimental or x or x
1: tools. That's a shame because I just had that exact idea. not a shame
4: so i i I think there is there's a talk about it at GopherCon, if i remember
1: yeah of course that a lot of that tooling now becomes possible and like uh dependency graphs and things writing tools like that probably becomes a lot easier as well
2: i like the point you made how semver is now you know to to people who kind of just sort of half-ass semver Semver, <laughs> with modules going into effect as default for 1.13, people are going to have to be very, very um, thoughtful about Semver versioning. And I know at least I have definitely YOLO'd my Semver versioning, at least in the minor releases. So, but yeah, like, I think that's another good um, artifact of that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm no exception. I, I I basically, the only time I ever release a V2 is just create a new repository, because <laughs> Because I don't know, I don't even know <laughs> what to do. I'm just like, yeah, I'll just do patch if I feel like it's kind of small, or minor if I feel like it's kind of big, and try not to break anything. That's kind of kind of what uh, I do now, and probably when we do a one dot o dot of Athens, I hope that there are other contributors that are way better at Semver than I am. Basically,
4: <laughs> my favorite use case is um, the currently the twerp, Framework um, is trying to upgrade or migrate to modules, and they're already at version five. And so there's a whole discussion about how to go to version six and introduce modules, but still support people not using modules. And so it's mm. it's definitely not a it's definitely a complex topic when you want to ensure backward compatibility.
1: Yeah, in fact, it's funny because Mark Bates once sent me a message and he just said, we can't be friends anymore because you haven't tagged your releases in this repo. That was it. <laughs> and I've not heard from him since. <laughs>
2: and that's why he's not on this show today.
1: Uh, you <laughs> drove him away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the moral of the
2: story is tag your releases.
1: Yes, with semantic versioning.
2: With Sember. Just makes things
3: so e- so much easier to to see like a V1.1.1 or whatever to see that in your go.mod file instead of like a huge long like commit hash. Mm. Community wise, it's kind of just like makes more sense to share your code that way because it has so much more information in it. For a human to read, than uh, like you know having a hash that you would have to go into GitHub and find and do all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, and it's also good practice for other reasons as well. Uh, if we think about the Go's 1.0 promise of protecting the everything's going to be backwards compatible to this point, you know when you do tag that v 100 release the first time, it's a significant event, and it'll and it feels more like that. You know, whereas if, if you're just not paying any attention to it, maybe you, are, you feel like you're at version one already. But, you know, actually doing it, I think, is it's quite a nice event that you get to look forward to in a project. And I especially like, you know, the Buffalo Project's been running for years and they're not at version one yet. Mm. And it's for the same reason. They want to, once they go to version one, they're going to make sure the stuff always works. It's one of the things I think that really helped Go get its adoption and be one of my favorite kind of tools and languages to, to use because I can rely on it.
3: Yeah, that's a good point about the pre 1.0 releases too, uh, because modules assumes that anything pre 1.0 could break at any time. So if you're a VO dot whatever, dot whatever, that's a signal to people in the mm-hmm. modules ecosystem that, you know, this could be a breaking change if it goes from anything to anything um, when you're at the vo. whatever tree of releases. Mm. And it's kind of the inverse of the 1.0 promise, kind of. Because yeah. when you're at 1.0, then you know that you're, you're stable. Mm.
1: Yeah. So when you say that Go modules knows that things could break at any moment, what, what does it do with that information?
3: Well, it's, it goes back to the path that I was talking about. Uh, when you go from 1.0 to 2.0 in that event or 2 to 3 or whatever, that's when you have to update your path to slash v2 or slash v3. Right. But when you go from v0.x to v1, you don't have to change the path because they, they assume that when you're at the v1 release, you're going to be at, you know, github.com slash my package. And from that point onward, from the V1 onward until you get to V2, you should be able to update your miner and your patch release as someone who's depending on that, the package, the module that we're talking about. And you shouldn't have any breakages, obviously. But they don't treat the event going from V0 to V0.whatever to V1 as a major event like that because you are already supposed to assume that everything was going to break when you went from v0.whatever to v1.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That's brilliant. Actually, it follows how we really are building things, doesn't it? It follows the reality of the fact that, yeah, before version one, it is going to be fluid. And and I like that. I like the fact that it has that kind of sympathy to how the community already does things. Yeah,
3: sympathy to the
1: developer too.
4: Yeah, I want to say Sembler is purely, I mean, not purely, it's mostly a human contract. The, you can do as much work as possible to have computers figure out, you know, API signature changes, um, like I mentioned before. But at the end of the day, computers can't really do a good job figuring out behavioral changes. And so, behavioral changes are also part of the contract of API stability, and so or compatibility, if you will. And so, really, like when you when you say I changed my Semver version, this is a new release. It's a human decision. Because even if you kept your entire API the same, but you changed the behavior, you're supposed to change the major version.
1: Right, yeah.
2: Marwin, with the good sound bites today, Denver is mostly a human contract for sure. Yes. Yeah.
1: I have
4: written them down, like I have a few more. <laughs> yeah, just, just do
1: them, and we'll pick the best one. Just good sound. Sa- I, I have a document called Good Sound Bites. <laughs>
2: Ooh. I need I need in my life. Give it to me. <laughs>
1: Sound bytes spelled B-Y-T-E-S, says Ian Moley on Slack. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. It's fair that's enough. Ah. It.
2: Isn't there any other way? There's no other way to spell bytes at go mm-hmm. time. B-Y-T-E-S.
1: Let me ask you this quickly. Do you know what four bits is called? Eight bits is a byte, right? Half
4: of a byte? Oh, what is that?
2: Huh. No. It's a thing? It's a unit?
1: Well, this I, I, don't, I think so, because I, I have something in my head that I remember, but I just can't remember where it's from and I've never checked it. I've never revisited it until just then.
4: I have to say I am, I am kind of sweating out a little bit because it feels like a job interview question. Awesome.
1: <laughs> well, we'll let, you, we'll let you know.
3: Someone put an amazing one into the channel. It's
4: correct.
2: I don't want to give it away.
1: It's oh. a, nib, a nibble. That's what I thought it was too. <laughs> oh,
2: that's awesome.
1: I don't know if he's joking.
2: N-Y-B-B-L-E. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Someone and verify this. Someone get me yes. a link. To it's verified. This. We need to snope the nibble. N-Y-B-B-L-E. Yeah. <gasps> <gasps> oh, it's verified. But this is Wikipedia. I don't know. <laughs>
3: but it's like, it's so nerdy though. It
1: has to be
2: true. <laughs> I know. It really is. I want it to be true so bad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. We can just make anything be true. We just have to all say it. It's easy. Oh, okay.
3: mm. Sounds good. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah yes. Ian. Ian on Slack saying he spelled it wrong, but actually, if you if you read it, it does say that one of the alternative spellings is N Y B B L <laughs> E. So yeah, nibble. So cool. Good.
3: So cool. Am I the only one who feels like nibble with a Y is more nerdy than yeah. Yeah, with an no. I? Okay.
2: Yeah. That's, yeah. That's the best way.
1: Cool. You might as well. I think if you've if you're yeah. calling four bits a nibble, you, you, you know what I mean? You're already not gonna be popular at most parties. You might as well <laughs> pop a Y in. That's-
3: <laughs> yeah. Go bigger, go home. Yeah. My new BJ exactly. man.
1: <laughs> well go home. Just go home, please. That's what I say at <laughs> yeah. the party. Not you. I'm not saying that now. That's what they say to me. <laughs> that's that's fair. So well, I just want to yeah, thank you so much. This has been an excellent episode. I think uh, you know dependencies are a pain in any language, and you know Go had GoPath before, and we got by with it, but it definitely wasn't right. Didn't feel right. And so Go module seems like it's a step in the right direction, and seems like it's it's going to really help us here. And then of course the dependency proxies and things uh, are also here to help. And if, if you need that in your own environment, then check out the Athens Project. I think you're going to love it. That's all from Go Time this week. We'll see you next week.
0: All right, GoTime is back. It's been so much work behind the scenes, but it's definitely paying off now. And it's so much fun producing this show. We have so many people listening live. Thank you so much for that. We love you. And if you're not yet, hang with us in Slack. We have a channel called go Time FM. Look it up. You'll find us. Chat with the community. Share stories. Share coffee recipes. Whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions on every single episode at changelog.com. So head to changelog.com slash go time. Find this episode and discuss it with the community. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, DigitalOcean, StrongDM, and also GoCD. Huge thanks to Fastly for being our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast and fix things around here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com changelog. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers at leno.com slash changelog. Our music is by the the one and only Brake Master Cylinder. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelaw.com slash master or go to your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows in one single feed, as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Congratulations. You've listened all the way to the end of the show. And guess what? Got a little surprise for you. Here's a preview of Brain Science, our upcoming podcast coming out very soon. The easiest way to subscribe is to subscribe to our master feed at the changelog.com master. Get all of our podcasts in one single feed, plus some extras that only hit the master feed, including Brain Science. Brain Science is a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain so we can understand things like behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and this thing we call the human condition. It's hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives? Here we go. As humans, one of the things that separate us from any other animal out there is the fact that we have language, we have words, and we have super powerful words that truly change how we feel and how we make other people feel. If the words we say have so much potential to influence ourselves and the world around us, how do we begin to understand the power of words?
5: So words really are the thing that separates us from all other animals because, right, sharks, bats dogs, lizards, they don't talk. And this is really critical when it comes to managing our moods and our feelings. One of the things um, that I sort of talk about, or even I mentioned earlier about the way in which we file things in our mind according to feelings, this is exactly how we differentiate it too. Thinking about uh, an example like with professional athletes, they, You might say that they get anxious, like before a mm-hmm. race or before you know uh, a run or a dive. But using that word, it, it's not really a threat, right? But their, their brain would be like, oh, I'm nervous, and now I start this whole sequence of events in my body. Whereas if I just change the word to like I'm anticipating or I'm excited, it creates a different sort of rollout of emotions as well as physiological responses. I mean – I'm anxious about going to Disneyland, is not usually what we say, right?
0: I'm excited.
5: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it then puts a lid on or files things differently in our mind, which then changes how we feel about it. So in my field in psychology, I would say, we always say, name it to tame it. The better I can name different feelings, the more I can tame whatever emotion that is. And so then I'm not really stuck living in this sort of mammal and reptile lane where I'm always just flipping my lid, I'm reactive, I'm angry, or I'm sad, but rather I can go, I recognize this is how I'm feeling, or like I'm, I'm afraid of some other threat, like losing my job. And I can go, you know what, here's the words I can use to talk to myself about that fear so that I'm not just stuck feeling afraid. Of a possible threat, which has never occurred yet.
0: You use this concept, too, to to say customized thinking. I'm not sure I fully understand what you mean by customized thinking. What do you mean by that?
5: Well, because we are human, we do have the power of choice, which is super powerful. Like nobody has to tell you how you need to think or how you need to feel right? And like your version of success might be very different than mine, which is going to impact my, desir- my choices and the direction I'm headed. And so when you think about customized, right? I mean, you can customize a car, you can customize your order at a restaurant. Like it really is tailored specifically to you and going, how do I want to think and how do I want to feel? One example I consider is, I want to always I want every day of the week to feel like I do on the weekend, because to me, the weekend feels great. I'm with my family. I don't I'm not sort of running things with such a tight timeline. And there's just a different sort of ethereal vibe to the weekend. Right. And I think, why does that only have to exist on the weekend? Yeah. I want that every day. (laughs) Why is
0: that? I want that every day, too. (laughs) (laughs)
5: Well, and I think part of it is really our attitude and our expectations. I mean, there are legitimate threats all around us, but it doesn't help me do me or do my life any better if I am only focused on threats. So I want to practice changing the channel in my mind that says, hey, yeah, I see that potential job loss, but I also see I'm with my family right now, and right now, nobody can take sort of what I've been through and how I feel away from me. I, I'm in charge of how I feel. So I'm going to do things that actually contribute to feeling better.
0: So how, how do we apply this name of the idea to this model then? Because maybe if you name the week, the weekend, can you change how you feel about it? Because that's really what it's about. It's like, How do we take you know the labels we apply things to things the names we give things the words we use the choices what i think we might call nuance i'm not really sure how you how how you put that into play with the power of words but the difference between like you said before being anxious or being excited you know fundamentally it's almost the same feeling but you know from a nuance level it's very different you know it's it's one direction or the other of excitement you know negative excitement potentially or positive excitement How do we apply that to customized thinking?
5: Well, I think that's a great way to say it, Adam. I really like that nuance because what we're looking for, even as I talk about the different brains, we want a symphony. I mean, I'm not going to fire the woodwind section because I don't like a violin, right? So I don't want to fire a certain part of my brain like, you're not really helpful. I don't need to see that. But what we need is a sense of congruence. And so, sure, not every day of the week can feel exactly like the weekend. So I'm not going to say this is how I feel, but I have to actually believe it for it to impact my mind, my brain, and my body in the way in which I desire it to. And so I might use the words like, I strive for every day to have a feeling that reminds me of exactly how I feel on the weekend so that I don't lose sight that like every day really is a gift and I get to enjoy every day of my life to some degree. And so another example might be, I'm living out in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of people have negative feelings about the weather. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) But so if someone were to say that they just need to learn to love it, that's gonna create what we call cognitive dissonance. It doesn't fit. So it doesn't matter how much I'm like, oh, I I do love the gray. I do love the clouds. It's not going to jive with me. And so it won't stick. So instead, I can say, I love the way in which the rain creates the green. And in the summer, when it is green, it is amazing.
0: This idea of learning to live with it, though, get over it. Uh, It is what it is. Like There's so many phrases we use to say just that, like just learn to live with it. What is it called again?
5: Cognitive dissonance.
0: And what does that mean when you play it out?
5: It doesn't go together. So that if you're like, oh, just just do it. You just need to get over it. Like that really isn't helpful either, because your body is giving you a signal and, and your brain is telling you, I don't like this sensation. I don't like how this feel. I mean, a lot of people will say, oh, I just hate the gray and the gray is just overwhelming. And so we have to go well what's my emotional buy in like what what do i like how does that even allow me to enjoy something else and so i'm going to look at going you know what i really like that i get to wear warm clothes or i really do love my coffee because it's for such a long time it's gray and rainy i want to be inside by a fire drinking my coffee right <laughs> and so how can i look for going you know what if I do these things I, I might not want to do, I do get some more of what I do want to do. And so it's really almost like a bartering system in your brain of saying, if you do this thing you don't like, you get this thing you, you do like. Or, you know, I know you don't have to make yourself do this thing unless you can see a way in which it actually benefits you or speaks to you emotionally everything adam really has to have this emotional Mm buy-in and if there's no good emotion no really the primary neuro neurochemical in our brain is dopamine for feeling good i don't get some hit of dopamine my brain's going to be like it's not worth it and i'm not going to do it period
0: that's a preview of brain science if you love where we're going with this send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released Email us at editors at changelog.com in the subject line, put in all caps brain science with a couple bangs. If you're really excited, you can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed at to changelog.com slash master or search in your podcast app for change Law master. You'll find it subscribe, get all of our shows and even those that only hit the master feed again, changelog.com slash master.